0: Father, we do thank You that You um, do repay uh, from Your fullness all that You take away. And uh, Father, I do pray that You would give us light this morning as we look at a passage from Your Word, um, that we would learn from it, that we would love You more because of it. In Christ's name, Amen. This morning we're going to be looking at... uh, John chapter 11 so you can go ahead and turn there I have a little bit of background information for us uh, just before we get into the actual text the book of John um, in many ways is an apologetic for the deity of Christ and all that simply means is that it basically um, seems to be written to tell us who Jesus is and that he is the son of God and that he is equal with God Um, Many people like to say, you know, well, Jesus never claims to be God. How can you say that he is God? Well, the book of John is pretty much one big statement that says Jesus is God. Um, That's what the book of John teaches us. In John chapter 1, we see the Word was with God and the Word was God. That Word, of course, being Jesus. Um, Jesus is being equated with God there. Uh, In John chapter 3, he's the one whom we trust for salvation. Chapter 4, he's the living water. Uh, In John 5, He calls God His Father. And the Jews understood at the time that that meant to make yourself equal with God. In John chapter 6, we see that Jesus has authority over matter. Uh, He feeds the 5,000 out of practically nothing. He has authority over nature. He can uh, calm the waves. He can walk on water. In John chapter 7 he says he's the bread of life which is to say he is the stuff of life he's the substance of life. In John chapter 8 he says he's the light of the world. And he makes that great statement before Abraham was I am equating himself with Yahweh who told Moses before he went before the pharaoh when they ask who sent you tell them I am has sent you. And in John chapter 10 he even goes so far as to say I And the Father are one. Along with all these various statements about who Jesus is, there's also a progression. We're moving closer and closer and closer to the final days of Jesus' ministry. We're moving closer and closer to the cross. And it's appropriate that we are entering into um, the Passion season. Discussing the final days of Jesus' ministry. And in these final days, things aren't going so well For Jesus. Things aren't going so well for his ministry if we look at them with human eyes. Jesus is dealing with the hatred of the Jewish authorities. He's dealing with the unbelief of his own disciples. And he's dealing with this death that's coming closer and closer to him. At this point in John chapter 10, he's escaped from the hands of the Jews Uh, one more time. He's gone across the Jordan River to a place that's a little bit more calm. For him, where he can do his ministry. Many people come to him during this period of time. Many people are healed by him and are saved by him. This is sort of the calm before the storm. Any movement back towards Jerusalem is simply movement back towards death, it's movement back towards the cross. But here we find in John chapter 11, just such a move. Just such a move that's going to set in motion the events that will ultimately lead to his death. Let's read from uh, John chapter 11. I'm going to have you stand for the reading of the word here. I'm going to read uh, John chapter 11 verses 11 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. All flesh is grass, and the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. He may be seated. There was a bumper sticker a number of years ago uh, that appeared on a lot of different cars. A lot of you have seen it. Um, It says simply, Jesus is the answer. Um, I remember when I was little, I used to see those on cars a lot. I think it was more of a 70s and 80s kind of phenomenon. Jesus is the answer. Um, And, of course, uh, on the backs of our cars, we like to play little wars with the things that we put on the backs of our cars. We know with the the Jesus fish, right? Put the Jesus fish on, and then somebody else shows up with a little Darwin fish. And then there's a Jesus fish eating the Darwin fish. And then there's a Darwin (laughs) fish stepping on the Jesus fish. And there's this little battle going on in the backs of our cars. Um, It was no less true for the Jesus is the answer bumper sticker. Because what came up on the backs of people's cars was... What's the question? If Jesus is the answer, what's the question? What's He the answer to? Is He the answer to my eating problem? Is He the answer to um, my depression? Is He the answer to uh, male pattern baldness? What exactly is Jesus the answer to? What, what What are we asking here? What's the question? And I think sometimes in our... Uh, sort of intellectual, uh, mental dashboards, we've sort of put all these little Jesus action figures up there. We've sort of wrestled, wrested Jesus from uh, who he truly is to sort of putting him up there as, you know, we have a little action figure of, you know, Jesus the football player and Jesus the soccer player and Jesus the counselor and Jesus whatever. We've made Jesus into something that we have created for ourselves. But in John chapter 11 we read of what the question is. We read what Jesus is the answer to. The question is rather the question is rather a problem. And the problem is that you're dead. That's the problem. That's the question we're trying to we're we're trying to ask here. You're dead. And Jesus is the answer to that deadness, Jesus provides resurrection, and he embodies that resurrection. In this passage, we have a cast of characters here. We have Mary. we'll read later about Mary, um, uh, if you read John chapter uh, 12, I believe it is, where Mary's the one who anointed Jesus 's feet with very expensive perfume, really upsetting Judas. Um, We have Martha. You remember the story of Martha. She uh, was the one who um, was very busy serving uh, and doing many things uh, for Jesus while Mary uh, sat at his feet and learned from him. And Jesus, uh, of course, told Martha that Mary had the better part. And then we have their brother, Lazarus. And Lazarus is sick. Um, In fact, he's dying. And This whole thing sets off a very curious set of events, which culminates in something that's pretty spectacular. Verse four of John chapter eleven. In verse three, the sisters have sent a messenger to Jesus, saying that our brother is ill, and it's very possible that as soon as this brother, or excuse me, this messenger left to say that Jesus was ill, that or that. Excuse me, that Lazarus was ill, um, that Lazarus, in fact, died at that point um, just because of the time frame that we have to allow for here. But when Jesus heard it, it says in verse four, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Very odd for him to say this illness does not lead to death. In fact, Lazarus is probably at this point already dead. In verses 5 and 6, it gets even stranger. He says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when He heard that Lazarus was ill, He stayed two days longer in the place where He was. He loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Knew He was sick. Knew He was probably dead. And decided to stay where He was a little longer. What exactly is going on here? Why is His love for these three individuals actually motivating Him to uh, stay longer? Motivating Him to stay away a little longer where the possibility of death is even greater? Well, finally, in verses 7-10, through after He waits two whole days, He says to His disciples, let us go to Judea again. But the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And then Jesus says something else that's very cryptic. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, it's you know not unusual to say something like this or to think about something like this. Back in those days, of course, they didn't have nice electric lights like we have. You worked during the day because it was daylight. When it became nighttime, it was time to stop working because if you kept trying to work at night, you'd probably hurt yourself because there wasn't that much light unless you had a torch or something which didn't provide that much light to begin with. What is Jesus saying to the disciples here? It's interesting that He says... In verse 10, if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. He doesn't say he, because he doesn't have light with him. He says he doesn't have the light in him. I think what he's telling the disciples here is that you're still walking according to what your eyes can see. You're still walking according to the principles of this world. And Jesus says, you're with me now. I'm the light of the world. Remember that earlier parts of John have said this, have said as much. The rules of light and day no longer strictly apply because I'm the light of the world. I am your new sun. I'm your new moon. I'm the one that guides you. To pay attention to the patterns and to the structures of this world is no longer um, helpful or beneficial or necessary because you have the One right here before you who will guide you, and who will protect you, and won't let anything happen until it's supposed to happen. After saying these things, he said to them, and we're not sure how he got this information. He was God, of course, so he may have just known it, or another messenger may have come and told him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And then that's the passage we read. Of course, he says, let us go to him. And for your sake, another strange thing. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And we start to see a little glimpse of what Jesus is up to here. I'm glad I wasn't there so that you might believe. So in the next section of this text, we see Jesus... uh, it says, now when Jesus came, He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Lazarus has been dead for four days. Now, this is significant because there was a tradition that was uh, going around at the time, and it's uh, I think it's a pretty long-standing tradition um, among the, the, um, the rabbi there, that the soul when the body would die, the soul would come up above the body and hover above it for three days. And it wasn't until that body changed that the soul would then depart. So, the significance of him staying away for four days, the significance of Lazarus having been dead for four days, is that there is no chance of that soul re-entering the body. The tradition stated that um, if Um, the soul decided to or if it was resuscitated at at some point within that three day period of time the soul would re-enter the body and the body would come back to life Um, so Jesus waits four days he waits past that period uh, that they thought the body could be resuscitated Um, and he waits beyond that so here Jesus is at the tomb of the very very dead Lazarus This is a fairly uh, wealthy family. We understand from from other sources, and so there were probably quite a large, uh, it was probably quite a large company of whalers. And of course, at this time, they had professional uh, mourners and whalers that would go along with um, these these families when someone would die. Um, uh, the uh, the law at the time even said that a poor family had to have uh, something like um, two flute players and one professional whaler. Um, This particular family uh, was um, apparently very wealthy, so they probably had an entire um, entourage of people surrounding them, uh, whaling for them. And if it was a big family, they had all sorts of other people who were there uh, with them. So Jesus arrives after four days amongst all these people. And Martha meets Him and Responds really still with faith. She knows that if Jesus had been there sooner, that she could have kept Lazarus from dying. But yet she still has confidence in what Jesus is able to do. She knows that he has direct contact with God the Father. And so then we come to, to me, what I think are some of the most powerful words in all of Scripture. I love these following verses here. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And then get this. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Jesus isn't providing resurrection here. He doesn't know of resurrection. He doesn't know of where you can find it. He doesn't know of the solution to Lazarus's problem of being dead. He is the solution. He is the resurrection. To know Him is to know resurrection. Then there's a uh, several verses here where We see that Jesus is greatly troubled by what is going on here. There are many uh, different um, interpretations of what's going on in the following verses where Jesus is deeply grieved in His spirit and deeply grieved by what is going on. And uh, some people ask, well, is Jesus upset at the unbelief that's around Him? Is He upset at the fact that Lazarus has died? Um, Is He upset because His friends are upset? I think the answer is yes. Yes. I think he's upset about all of these things. I think that he looks, in this passage, he seems to look at a world that is broken, at a world that is dead. He sees the effects of sin. What happens when life looks in the face of death? It had to be stomach-turning for him um, for life to stare in the face of death to see the effects of sin the consequences that come about because of it. Because death is not a natural part of life. A lot of times we try to do that at funerals. We try to say, well, death is just a natural part of life. It's just something that happens. It's not a natural part of life. Death isn't natural. It's not supposed to happen. We were not made to die. God did not create Adam in the garden so that he would die. It was the advent of sin in our lives. It was the coming in of this wretchedness, of this brokenness that brought about death. Death is not natural. It's anything but natural. And Christ comes to restore that which is natural. That which is eternal life. And He does this through a sign here. He does this in the metaphor of raising Lazarus from the dead. Then Jesus, verse 38, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. I remember this from when I was little in my King James Bible. I think it said, behold, he stinketh. I always thought that sounded kind of funny. But it's true, He's been dead for four days. The body, after three days, has started to decompose. There's going to be an odor coming out of there. And we know Martha, she likes to keep a clean and tidy house. She probably doesn't like odors and that sort of thing. But the bigger picture here is that in fact, the body will have started to decompose by now. Jesus said to her, You realize he had to specify Lazarus. If you're in a graveyard and there's dead people all around and Jesus says, come out, everybody comes out because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He had to specify which one was to come out. And then verse 44 says rather unceremoniously, the man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. You can imagine Lazarus lying there. I mean, he's dead, so he doesn't really know that part about it. But suddenly waking up and probably being a little bit startled by what's going on. He's wrapped up. He's inside a burial cloth of some sort. They would tie the arms to the body and the the feet would be bound at the bottom and he'd have a a piece of cloth pulled over his head pretty tight. And Lazarus wakes up and has to get up and sort of roll himself off of the cave. And we don't know what the cave looked like exactly or how deep it was. We don't know how far he had to go to come out of it. Some of them weren't very deep at all. Some of them went way down into the ground. You can imagine Lazarus in... um, His surprise coming up out of this tomb, rising from the dead. Well, there are two kinds of resurrection that are being figured for us here there's the resurrection of the heart, or the resurrection of the soul, and the resurrection of the body. Two kinds of resurrection that Jesus is working in the lives of the people around him. He wants to work resurrection in the hearts of his disciples. He's dealing, remember, with the unbelief of His disciples. They didn't want Jesus to return to Judea because they thought He was going to get killed. And we talked about that already, how He said to them, you're still walking according to the principles of this world, according to what seems right to you, rather than placing your hope and trust in Me. The theologian uh, Jürgen Moltmann um, says, this is the sin which most profoundly threatens the believer. It is not the evil that he does, but the good that he does not do. Not his misdeeds, but his omissions that accuse him. They accuse him of lack of hope. The disciples lacked hope in the Messiah. Jesus had to resurrect their hope. He had to resurrect their minds. And it was part of this whole idea of regeneration. And we talked about this in Sunday school this morning, about how regeneration is a kind of resurrection. It's a bringing to life of that which was dead. This was something that they would get later after they were witnesses to Christ's resurrection. They would understand what it meant to follow Christ, what it meant for Christ to be at the center of the universe. Paul talks about this in Colossians chapter 2. Here's the key. If then you have been raised with Christ, and this is why they wouldn't get it till after the resurrection, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory." I remember uh, um, uh, Nathan Hidema let me borrow his Band of Brothers DVD box set one time, and so I was watching through them, and there's a great line in there uh, where there's this guy who's just completely fearless. like he, he, Nothing seems to rattle him. And somebody says, why are you never rattled? Why are you not afraid? And he says, because I'm already dead. What difference does it make? And there's a sense in which, too, we are already dead. We have died with Christ if we believe in Him, we're already dead. We're dead to this world. We're dead to the principles of this world. We're dead to its structures and alive to Christ. The other thing is that Jesus was dealing with the unbelief of those around Him. You would think that the raising of the dead would be enough to make people believe in you. You would think that... And the fact is that we learn in verse 41-42... He tells us that He's doing this so that the people around would believe. And we learn later on that the the Pharisees actually hear about this event. And they acknowledge it. They say, yeah, He's doing all this stuff and He needs to be stopped. They wouldn't believe even though Jesus had actually raised the very dead back to life. The Pharisees were concerned with their place and with their nation. In fact, they actually um, say that. That if this Jesus thing gets out of hand, that the Romans are going to come crashing down on us and they're going to remove us from our place and our nation. They were too in love with this world. They were too in love with their own status, with their own power over the things in this world to believe in the One who held the whole world in His hands. The second major thing that Jesus does here is He resurrects the body. Jesus is not merely the resurrector of the soul. He is not merely one who raises us spiritually from the dead. He also raises us physically from the dead. Here, Jesus gives uh, the sign of raising Lazarus from the dead as a metaphor of that. He does it in Himself not too many days after this actual event. Jesus here reaffirms himself as both the creator and the recreator of the world. John 1 3 tells us all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus was very active and very present in the creation of the world. And here we see him active and present in the recreation of the world. Jesus, as the voice who said, Let there be light. Jesus, the one who set the moon and the sun and the stars and the planets and their rotations and revolutions, this same voice that spoke the universe into existence is the one that goes into a tomb and vibrates against the eardrums of someone who is dead. And that voice, borne along by the Holy Spirit, brings about life. Because when you hear these words and when you know Jesus, you get life. That's what comes about from hearing the words of Jesus. Now Lazarus was raised from the dead, but his resurrection pales in comparison to the one that Jesus, um, the one that Jesus had, and the one that we will experience. Lazarus was raised in his corrupted body. Lazarus died again, eventually. He probably got sick or he got old, and he died again. His body was raised. It was a sign. It was a miracle. But when Jesus died, His body was raised incorruptible. It was perfect. It was glorified. And that's the body that we too are promised. And we act as though in some ways this has already happened. This is a reality of the future that has already occurred. Even though it is yet in the future. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Paul tells us, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This is where the resurrection of the body and the resurrection of the soul come together. By resurrecting the soul, the body is also brought to life. And Jesus shows us that in the resurrection of Lazarus, and it makes it possible for all of us by raising Himself from the dead. But in order to participate in this resurrection, you must first be reconciled to God. You must understand that the reason that death came into the world was because of your sin Because of the sin of humanity, death came into the world, and the wrath of God is revealed against that death. And there are two ways, there are two remedies to this. One, you can either believe that Jesus paid the penalty of that death, or you can pay it yourself. And the second option is not viable, it's not pretty. Because the second option is an eternity without God. The second option is an eternity in hell. You must be reconciled to God. You must believe the death of Christ. You must believe that Jesus took that wrath upon Himself. Lazarus was prepared for death. And the way we prepare for death is by knowing Jesus. And he knew Jesus. And he believed in Him. He knew the One who could give him life again. And what kind of life do you think Lazarus lived after he had been raised from the dead? What opportunities do you think that he took advantage of that he had missed before? Here's a man who was dead who was given new life. And I don't mean things like participating in extreme sports or living life to the fullest or many of these ways in which we uh, people try to tell us this is what life it really is. I'm going to grab it by the horns and get all I can out of it. But rather, a life lived glorifying God in whatever capacity you have been called to live. How grateful must He have been for this new life He had been given. How ready must He have been to live his life to God's glory, to follow His laws, and those who witnessed this great miracle, we see it affected them too. Later on, in chapter twelve, uh, verse seventeen, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that he had, they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Imagine people saying, look, the world has gone after him because we bear witness to the resurrection. It didn't go well for Lazarus. After he had been raised from the dead, the Pharisees immediately started to plot to kill him. It wasn't a perfect easy life after he had been raised from the dead. And so us, those who have believed, those who have been raised from the dead by Jesus Christ, by the words of the Creator, we need to live lives that attest to Jesus as the resurrection. We need to live those resurrection lives. Live, the, live life as those who have been given new life. As those who were dead, but now have been raised again and will be raised again again physically and spiritually, in the last day. Wouldn't it be a great thing to say that the world has gone after Him? To witness to this resurrection. To be witnesses in our bodies. To be witnesses in our words and our souls to this resurrection that Christ provides. And we will pray that the world will in fact go after Jesus Christ. Amen.